When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Get to the Good Part guys are back, with part 2 of chapter 30. Chris and Aaron are about to ponder the ever-important question, can IOI indentured servants squeeze in a have unit and, well, you know, and now, back to the show. So... You had, you had mentioned a question before. I'm gonna I'm gonna lay ownership on you, which was if it, something about two indents possibly getting it on, getting busy in one of these habs. Yeah, because they're so small. Well, it, it's what three by three. Yeah, three feet by three feet is not big. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's really not. You know, when I read this, when I read the dimensions. If you've ever been in a MRI machine. Oh yeah, that, that's not fun. No not fun at all. No no no. Oh, my Lord. That's kind of what it reminded me of, was the kind of space in an MRI. Well, an MRI, that tube is a lot smaller than three by three. Well, was it three feet by three feet, or was it... It was a, a meter by a meter by two meters. So basically, three feet by three feet by six feet. That's kind of fucking nuts. That's like, you know, that's coffin shape. Yeah, and that doesn't exactly help anybody out if they are six feet tall or greater. But that said, I imagine two relatively slender individuals could get it on in a coffin, could probably get it on in one of these halves. So this myth is plausible. I think it's plausible. And I was looking for something, something to reference there. And the fifth element came up where they're on the ship. And they kind of go into or into the little sleeping hab. Oh yeah. And I was kind of look. I was kind of eyeballing that and thinking, well, three feet high, definitely wider than three feet, but but still not horrible if you're a relatively slender person. If your name is Chuck and you happen to weigh three hundred pounds and you have a lot of hair on your back, this might be a problem. Yeah. So now going back to that scene with Chuck. No, in the fifth element. Oh. When they're in that little mm-hmm. hab unit, right. this is the solution to our sleep problems. Go to sleep now. Oh, where they push the button, it just knocks yeah. them out. Need that shit. That's actually not a, not a, God, you know, you would think that 25 years from now, they would have done that. But that would have kind of screwed with the story. Yeah. Probably. They just pressed a button and knocked them out and forced them to rest. But that would be like the next level of, of indenturement where you force them to sleep. That That's like version 30 of the think device. Whew. That would be fucked up. <laughs> Man. So he's going through and he keeps expecting to be discovered and locked out of the system, but it never happens. His passwords continue to work and he spends six nights laying siege on the inside of IOI's network, digging deeper and deeper into IOI's systems. With his spoon. With his spoon. And what he ends up doing is ends up downloading all the Sixer files on Halliday and all of their data on the gates, which is a tremendous amount of wealth. If, his, if, if he was able to gather what he did with no money, IOI had access to a gargantuous amount of data 
that put Parzival's Grail Diary to shame. Sure did. In fact, he said it made it look like a set of cliff notes. Oh, yes. Good old cliff notes. Uh, classic, classic 80s hack. I mean, that's like school hacking. Isn't that? It's like education. That hacking. was the grandpa to Wikipedia right there. That's true. God, you know, you're absolutely right. That is. Like, we. it's hard to fathom what a person had to do to not learn or to learn as little as possible. <laughs> yes, I was on that boat. And before the internet existed, like before the ni- or mid-1990s, which is not that long ago, you didn't have a lot of ways to not learn something that you were required to learn. And there were certainly not any ways to, to not learn something that were free. Yeah, no shit. You, you had to pay to not learn. Oh, yeah. So... And Cliff Notes are still in the bookstores, but but Cliff Notes was the Wikipedia for common school material. So if there was some freaking book that your English class required you to read, you're guaranteed that there was a Cliff Notes that summarized every chapter and made it a little bit easier for you to pass that damn test. Yeah, it made it a lot easier. And nowadays, there's just so much stuff on the internet that... I'm surprised Cliff Notes is still in business. You know, that's a f- very good point because why would you buy a Cliff Notes when you can just go to Wikipedia or any number of a billion websites that are summarizing shit? I'd say because Cliff Notes would be easier to carry around and use than a phone or a laptop that your school would not allow you to use. Okay, it's reasonable. You know, you're kind of going low tech. If your school's kind of cut off your ability to use the internet, then you're going low tech. You're sneaking in that that Cliff Notes, which was conveniently conveniently looked like police traffic tape yeah. with the yellow and red stripes. Well, it wasn't red, it was yellow, black, yellow and black stripes. Hard to fucking miss. But uh, I would imagine also there was a level of trust in uh, printed Cliff's Notes that you wouldn't necessarily have in just any rando thing on the internet. Are you saying that the internet has fake news in regards to Cliff's Notes? I'm not saying that it has whatever. I'm just saying that even things on Wikipedia aren't necessarily true. True. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, because yeah, an, because know. anybody can put stuff on there whereas Cliff Notes they're published, they're curated, they're vetted. One would think, one would think Wikipedia is arguably more accurate than any set of printed encyclopedias that are in the market today. And the reason why is because first off, yes, you could go and change a page, but there are tons of people watching changes to pages and correcting bad information and and constantly updating it. Whereas an encyclopedia, uh, you know, scientific discoveries kind of go around the bend and and change and modify and update about every three to seven months, depending on what, what we're talking about. So encyclopedias become outdated the minute they're published. Pretty much. Yeah. Whereas Wikipedia is updated, you know, almost the moment it happens. Uh, now, whether or not how accurate it is, that can come into question, but there's constantly people creating edits. And in fact, Wikipedia has a board of folks that will look at people who are constantly creating issues from editing and choose to block their accounts. So, you know, that there are active people in Wikipedia. It's not just the wild, wild west of information that people think it is, that just because you can create an account and go in and change something doesn't mean that it will stay like that for longer than 20 minutes, and that if you continue to put up bullshit, you'll get blocked. Your account will get cut. So while rummaging around through IOI, Parzival 
ends up finding some pretty scary shit. Apparently, uh, IOI has been observing all of them. They've got records on Wade and Artemis and H and Shoto. Even finds a video confirming that IOI threw Daito off a balcony to his death. Uh... And I thought this was kind of interesting because they filmed him going through the window and then, you know, out the window and recording him going down until he dies. Why on earth would they do that? Why? That makes no sense. Well, okay, all right, but, you know, if you hired somebody to do a job, you want proof that they did the job, right? But this is also incriminating evidence. Well, sure, but it's behind a maze of firewalls. (laughs) One might say it's a labyrinth. (laughs) One might say it's a labyrinth. Which you can only get through with a spoon. And lots of passwords. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, yes, it is, but if you're IOI and you think you kind of sit at this level of imperviousness and that no one can get into your system because you've never known anyone to get into your system. One might say they have a little bit of hot cockiness. A little bit, a little bit cocksure. You know, they would keep incriminating evidence in a place that they thought was safe. Well, you know, that that somebody would have to prove something somewhere. So it's either going to be videotaped or it's going to be what drawn by someone or they're going to have to digitize it somehow to communicate it to them. As you know, we're talking about 25 years into the future here. So no real surprise that he would have a digital copy somewhere in a file. This is kind of like FBI level business that you wouldn't expect somebody to break in and look at your most confidential top secret information. But here it is. But what's real concerning is what Parzival found when he went into those files. And for some of them, aside from aside from videotaping Daito's death, I say videotaping. Aside from recording Daito's death. It'll always be videotaping to anybody that grew up in the It'll always be videotaping to you. Yeah. That's when he learns exactly how much they know about the high five and what their plans are for the high five. And, you know, in the moment, he knows that there are some people that are safe. H, all over the place. Can't nail him down. Obviously, they got to Daito. They found where he was. And they know where Artemis is. Not only do they know where she is, they're filming it. They're filming it. They're recording it. They've bugged her house. They've got pictures of her. They've been bugging her house for a long time. So they got a lot of pictures for him to go through. So if you thought he was obsessive about about following her online, uh, uh. now he's now he's got pictures of of uh, the real her. And and I'll tell you, when I got to this point in the book, I thought, you know, we've got all of this sort of build up in the book about how she's like, look, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I look like. I could be some dude named Chuck. He may have been relieved that she, her name isn't Chuck and that she is a he that weighs 300 pounds with hairy back uh, and, and lives at his mom's basement. But for the way that she was talking it up, for her to just have a port wine stain on her across her left eye, did, it, did that feel to you like, like that was a really light thing to be super self-conscious about? Like of all the things that a person could have an issue with, and I'm, I'm a pretty hefty guy, so I, I understand uh, weight bias and, and uh, you know, a number of other things, you know, people who kind of have weird asymmetric features and shit, you know, things that just stand out and bug you. Like to me, that's, that's like so far low on the list. Like if, if Parzival had to get over something about her, that she was hiding. This seems like the the slightest thing. I guess, but as far as something that would be something that would be hard for her to overcome, but be easy for him to 
look beyond, like it's something to look yeah. beyond. I mean, that's not a bad choice to have made. Yeah, but if you're trying to demonstrate that the main character in the book is truly in love with who she is as she is expressed her personality expressed online, not just the way her avatar looks. We just come to find out that she looks like her avatar, but she has a birthmark. Like there's not, there's nothing for him to jump over here. Like this is not a big deal. This reminds me of when we had Willie on the show to talk about the movie. Uh huh. And he's like, no guy's going to care. <laughs> yeah. There's this, this huge sort of hyped up deformed or, or crippled or, or, you know, just something that a person would have a really hard time getting around. Like the, the person, like, what if she was like 47, let's just say. Beautiful, but 47. Like, like I could see that being something he would have a hard time getting over. That age difference, right? You know, it, but, but here it's the, the same age, but it's just, it's just a birthmark. So it, it's kind of like if you really want to show that what he said was true, that he's not in it just for the looks, but because he loves her personality, this is kind of like letting him off the hook. Like, oh, thank God, she's still beautiful. A birthmark? Oh, God. Well, you know, I'm fine with that. They, they're both these uber-gunter types. And by that, I mean like people that would be in the high five, so to speak. Yeah, you know the type. I know the type. So they grew up essentially in the Oasis. And there's been a few times where we've referred to Parzival as really kind of being a nobody in the real world, but of somebody in the Oasis. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that they both spent more than just their, uh, well into their formative years, all their time in the Oasis. So wouldn't that be the only life that matters to them? So in some, like, why... Why would she be hung up on that if it doesn't really matter because your real self is your oasis avatar? I don't know. I, I don't I don't honestly know. There's I mean, these weird psychological things that I guess I'm just not qualified to speak on because I'm not a psychologist type person. But it always seems like when we were in those chapters where Wade was this super depressed, almost like almost like he was gonna take a jump off of the forty second floor. Mm-hmm. But he's like doesn't really matter because in the Oasis, I'm the great Parzival. Mm-hmm. So it kind of erased any poor self-esteem that he had. So I would think that if Artemis in real life, if she was hung up on this birthmark, that she'd be like, well, so what? I'm awesome in the Oasis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, at least as far as the book was concerned, her character didn't have a birthmark. And it might be that situation where your character in the Oasis is like your clothing or like your makeup and that you are the way that you make yourself to look like. That said, we do that every day. We, we change our persona by what we wear, by how we present ourselves and by how we change who we are through that process. I would generally tell people not to kid themselves by thinking that they're not a different person based on just simply how they dress. Even the colors you choose whether you know it or not, can influence how you behave during the day. You know, there's that old phrase that if you want to be treated like a million dollars, if you want to feel like a million dollars, you want to look like you're worth a million dollars, that you really do take on a feeling based on what you're dressed as. That, that hurts a little bit, especially since I did not win the Mega Millions. Was it Mega Millions or Mega Billions? Uh, that I thought it was big. Just shy of 1.6, and I didn't win a <sighs> 
Did you play? Yeah, I played a couple times. Really? Can't win if you don't play. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you most certainly will lose. That's as close as I'm going to get to Halliday's fortune. This is true. This is true. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't play the lottery because, you know, it's... Drawing your money away? You can say it. I won't, I won't, I won't be hurt. I believe that there's an excitement and a hope that goes along with it that, you know, the number pops and you kind of pull out the tag. And you're like, maybe, maybe, maybe. And quite quickly you go, oh, I, I don't like to lose. So I try not to play games where I have very little control over whether or not I can win. You know, how does it go? The best way to win the game is not to play at all. Sure. I, I totally fucked that quote up. I'm pretty sure that's not the quote. But yeah, no, it, it doesn't appeal to me. I'm, I guess people could say, well, if you don't play, you're a 100% loser. But I don't play Pac-Man every day either. I don't consider myself to be losing Pac-Man every yeah, day. And some of us are 100% loser whether we play or not. So. <laughs> no. Just saying. You know, if you, if you play the game, yeah, you know, there is a chance. It's just incredibly low. Yeah, somebody won. Could have been me. I, I feel you. Um, just so you know, if I ever do win the lottery, I will still do this podcast. Right on. <laughs> You're just going to do it a lot more confidently. I'm going to do it as owner to the rights He's of the buy movie Ready Player One. <laughs> I'm going to have a huge house, one one room dedicated to, to recording. Just I'm going to buy Ernest Klein and say, write books, damn it. We're due for Ready Player Five. Write it. Write it. <laughs> Make that shit happen with Parsifal in this chapter. Do it's it. It's going to be like misery. I'm not actually going to do that, Ernest. I, I promise. You're not going to hobble him with a big no. sledgehammer and a, and a quart of wood? I couldn't do that. Dude, that scene just absolutely kills me. I know. Me. So anyhow, so I was kind of cheesed at the fact that, that this was the most... This is as bad as it could be. This is so light that this just really does not test any depth of superficialness of any. It was, yeah, exactly. It doesn't test any depth of superficiality in his liking her. Not in the slightest. You know, I would have liked it better if she was a guy named Chuck. That might be a little more difficult for him to get over, though. I'm okay with that because we got to test that shit, right? You know, again, it just it seemed very, very, very. It just it justified the shallowness, like you know, woo, you know, I, I didn't have to call that bluff. Yeah, <laughs> I guess is the best way to put it. And I can see the appeal of characters playing opposite gender personas in the Oasis. Oh, is this something that you're into doing? You, uh... I wouldn't necessarily say I'm into it, but yes, I have uh, on certain games, absolutely. Other than Metroid. Other than Metroid, right, because Metroid, you didn't have a choice and you didn't know it till the end, originally. You know, I'll tell you that back in the day, like when you knew that, mm-hmm. I was like, okay. Yeah, not a big deal. Yeah, it was totally not a big deal. Right, so so Battlefield Player Unknown, so PUBG, I have a female character. Oh, tell me more. Well, all right. So here, here is the thinking. If you're going to be following a character in third person, and I think this is like the... The, the sort of Laura Croft draw, because when you first were playing Tomb Raider, you were in a third-person perspective. You were Laura Croft, and you were, you know, Tomb Raiding like you do. But the, the thinking here was that if you had to follow a character around and, and fight with this character, that I just wanted something that was more attractive to look at than a dude's back end. I can see that. I'm not faking their persona i'm not playing it off as if i am that person you know but i'm I'm merely saying here is a character that i am i am dressing up and and is attractive and that i will get to see as my my main controlling character and kicking other people's asses that makes a lot of sense yeah and it's it allowed me to be a fan of my character as a male being a fan of a female character in the game basically get to run around and find guns and shoot people what's wrong with that 
No, nothing's wrong with that. Uh, I play Overwatch, and a majority of my characters are female. A more majority, a majority of the characters that I that I that I primarily play are female. So, by the same reason? No, very different reasons. Because they are well. First off, you're in first person nearly all the time, so that doesn't matter. But it's for their different skills. So, but in that game, like you're playing it for the the abilities that they've got and for what works for a given map. You know, a majority of the characters, most of my mains in in Overwatch are female characters. Okay, never played. Don't know anything about it. I know. Shame on me. It's a fantastic game. We move on from Artemis's folder. We look at H's folder, and right. he sees that in that folder, H's true identity is listed as Henry Swanson. Right. Now, he mentions that he knows that that is clearly not his real name because Henry Swanson is the alias that Jack Burton used in... Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, yeah, which... I first watched very recently, and you just rewatched it for the first time in like 30 years, right? I don't think I'd ever seen the entire movie all the way through. And I know that's got to sound asinine, but as a kid, this was on HBO, and you would just turn the channel, you'd hit HBO, and you'd never really catch an HBO movie before it came on. Yeah, that's true. You'd always catch it. You'd always be turning it almost like into the middle of the movie or some point. So. I think I had never seen the beginning five minutes, but I had flipped across HBO so many times, and they played Big Trouble in Little China so many times on HBO that I, I had the whole movie. It's almost as if I had seen a collage of the entire movie, one collage piece at a time, and I just watching it from beginning to end sort of sewed it all together. But it's like I knew all the parts. That's how I feel when I when I watch certain movies that are on network television. And mm -hmm. you see bits and pieces, but you enjoy watching them. And even though they cut out parts, you, you get mm -hmm. enough of that collage. But you've never actually really seen the whole damn thing. It's weird. And then you see the uncut movie with all the cursing and the scenes that they cut out. And it's like, mm -hmm. wow. Ah. Aha. It's a lot. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing I thought about as I rewatched this movie. And I was listening to... Uh, or reading the connection here to H and Henry Swanson. And, and something interesting here was that that IOI wasn't able to nail down exactly where H is. You know, they had like uh, Washington, D.C., New York City, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. I mean, generally East Coast, but all over the freaking place. Don't forget Boston. And Bo I'm sorry, and Boston, right? And the interesting thing here was that Henry Swanson from... Big Trouble in Little China was a what? Trucker. He was a trucker. He was all over the place, constantly traveling. You know, he'd stop in a city, he'd get into a little bit of trouble, hop right back into the Pork Chop Express and keep on trucking. And I thought, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. That That is a, an interesting connection here, that we have H, who is apparently all over the place, and using the name of somebody whose character is constantly on the road. So is this basically saying that VPNs don't exist anymore? Uh, that's a good question. However, if I, you know, that's a good question. Like, why wouldn't it? But I guess another thing here, though, is that it's if you are using someone else's pipeline and they want to sniff your pipeline, which is a really kind of a disgusting sounding way of somebody eavesdropping in on a, a source of data, right? Sounds like something Hot Cock 007 would want to do. <laughs> Hotcock007 is a master hacker. He likes to sniff the data pipeline. That sounds awful. It doesn't sound any better than I thought it would. Uh, 
But it, I'll give you an example. The government has been trying to procure data about its citizens for a number of years. Oh, man. Wait. No and way. I don't believe that. I know. I know, right? And this is where Edward Snowden came in and exposed the fact that the government was procuring data streams. And immediately people were like, Facebook's giving up our data and Google's giving up our data. And they're coming back like, no, 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 we totally are not doing that. But here's this PowerPoint presentation that shows we've collected data from this company and we're going to start procuring data from this other company. But the gist is that when you're using the internet on the U.S. infrastructure, the U.S. owns that infrastructure. So it's literally like they own the plumbing and they're able to capture the data in route to a given website, let's say. And put fluoride in it. It's supposed to make you healthier. It doesn't. It well, it might it makes your teeth stronger. Yeah. So, it, but they can grab that data, and even if it is secured, it doesn't matter because at some point someone's going to crack the most recent security protocol, the, the current security protocol. Someone will eventually hack it in the future, and then they can come back to when that protocol was used, and then decrypt it, and that's that. So the problem here is that IOI seems in the book to own a majority of the of those pipelines, of those networks that people were using. VPN should take you straight to the business, so it should be kind of, if you will, uh, unsniffable. But I kind of wonder if it's not possible to sort of intercept, if you will, in between, because it's, it's still got to go over. It's, you know, it's a digital direct connection, but you've still got to bounce through a number of infrastructure points. So I don't know. That's a good question, though. They didn't really mention that as being a more secure way to, to get in there. But anyway, yeah. the biggest issue here is that in going perusing through all of these files is that IOI had them all flagged to be disposed of, <sighs> that they would all be killed. Well, that they would force mm -hmm. them to help IOI open the third gate with the crystal mm -hmm. key, find the egg, and then dispose of them. They would be dispatched. Rubbed out. Snuffed. Yeah. Euphemism. <laughs> Insert. And that's uh, that's kind of, that's concerning. So the, the problem that we run into now is that he's got to bump up his plan. Like his plan was going to take several weeks as far as going through, figuring out what IOI was doing, and then get into a place in the network where he could devise a plan to break down the shield that is currently around Anorak's castle. The orb of Asuvox that's projecting this shield currently. So find some way to get past that that shield so that everyone could, you know, jump the castle. But coming across that, he's got to bump up his schedule a little bit. He's got to get out like he now. clearly had no confidence in IOI solving this thing if he was planning on weeks there. Because they already had exclusive access. Mm -hmm. How could he have thought they were going to do thing do it quicker than that? If he planned on weeks. Well, even one week, because as he mentioned, you know, if he had something mailed to him, it would still take like several days. And then he didn't have yeah. that, you know, but the fact that they had something way more insidious for them and that they could act on that sooner rather than later. And that they had already put out the command that morning that there was, you know, an intercepted email sent to the executives that they were going to do that, which means that that they would be leaving immediately, not in a week. Not in a few weeks, but like basically damn well now to go and kidnap her meant that he had to get the hell out. 
and, and cut his plans off short or do whatever he needed to do ASAP. And that kind of, you know, if you've ever been rushed to do something in software, your mistakes are going to happen. Yeah, a little bit. And I would say that that is where this chapter ends, is him realizing that this is a... a grown into a much more serious problem and his his goal does change a little bit his focus has changed now from not necessarily attacking IOI but now with this extra burden of protecting his friends yeah it's survival time yep it's survival time so we've reached the end of the chapter but with that said there were a lot of little easter eggs a lot, a lot of little things that we tend to pick through. So we're going to put on our tinfoil hats and let's go through some of the bits that jumped out. So what's something that jumped out for you? A bunch of little things jumped out. Not everything I found answers to. So I'll start, I guess, sort of in order of things. But the avatar that comes online after Hawkock 007 in Parzival's Q is named Vartax. Vartax with three X's. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is you go from Hot Cock 007 to Vartax with the triple X in it. Bit of mm-hmm. a weird theme going on there with avatar names. I guess they're not so creative. I don't know. That happens. But anyway, so Vartax, I started looking up, I guess is from World of Warcraft. And I don't have I don't have a lot of... I, I've played World of Warcraft a little bit. So where does that come from specifically? This may be referring to a character or whatever that may not have existed when the book came out. It's just, it's something that exists in World of Warcraft, at least as of now. Mm-hmm. But I see a little picture of Vartax. Is a 110, well, I guess 110th level Goblin Fire Mage Burning Legion. Okay. Is it an actual character that somebody owns? I have or is no that idea. a non-player character? I, if you looked at this, would you be able to tell? I, I might. So the other reference to Vartax that I had found was a reference to Vartax Detention Facility, which is in this game called Ratchet and Clank. But the detention center, this Vartax Detention Center, was a prison in the Artemis Galaxy. Mm-hmm. I thought that mm-hmm. was kind of cool. But while the the game franchise, I think, started back in 2002, the introduction of the Vartex Detention Facility and this Artemis Galaxy came much later, as far as I can tell. Later than the book? Yeah, but I think so. Or at least the when it appeared in this Ratchet and Clank franchise was... Mm-hmm. Much, I think it was post-publication of Ready Player One. Gotcha. So we're talking 2011. Some of the stuff I'm seeing here is dated 2013. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. I I wonder if that's a... It's kind of hard with some of these. Yeah, 2013. So yeah, maybe this came in afterwards. That would would be kind of an interesting turn, though. It's a a bit coincidental. I wouldn't say that that is super tinfoil hatty, but it is a little bit ironic. Yeah, so I'm on, like, this wiki for this Ratchet and Clank thing, and I clicked on the name Artemis, and it's uh, talking about the Artemis galaxy or whatever. There's this character called Artemis Zog, and on this biography, 
It says, Arn Mazog became a huge fan of intergalactic superhero Korg. Arn Mazog was often called Artie among close friends. Mm-hmm. So, Artie. That's that's interesting. So, I wonder if one's an homage to the yeah, other. Who knows? You know, like, like it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if somebody read the book and was such a huge fan that they, in turn, took some names out of the book and then used those as Easter eggs in the game. Although, I would love to think that it's the other way around. The fact that there's some dating there, kind of interesting. When all those things that just felt a little too coincidental started coming up, I was like, huh, what do you know? Hmm, interesting. So that was the first kind of tinfoil hat thing that I found. I tried again to find some significance behind Parzival's IOI number, and I still can't crack that nut. Okay, okay. But digging into numbers, which is always fun, this chapter certainly had its fair share of number dropping. Didn't it start with a little bit of hot cock? Uh, yeah, 007. So what was interesting to me was I had this this weird sense of the like a subliminal countdown, mm-hmm. and and I'll explain. Sort of in order, uh, or in descending order. There's this. All these numbers start appearing, and I'll, I'll kind of go through a few of the examples that I found. So. Early on, he talked about the exploits. He got those seven months prior to the events of this chapter. And Hawkeye 007 is a level seven avatar. There's a lot of sevens in this chapter. The call time mm-hmm. on his call with Hawkeye 007 was two minutes and seven seconds. He got a customer satisfaction rating of six. And he fell asleep five times during his shift. Uh, he, he got three five-minute restroom breaks. That one's probably a little bit of a stretch. Mm-hmm. So obviously you can see like there's a, there's a seven, there's a six, there's a five. And I was like, where's four? What could four be? And what I came up with on that one was that when he's in the star chamber looking at the folders, the folder with the big red X on it is Dido, and he's the fourth member of the high five. And then, of course, three men entered his apartment, and the exploit had tapping the apply button three times. He got two little red pills to stay awake, and yeah. Well, we didn't. We never, never got, got the one. one. This this feels very. This is like this is like the uh, the twelve days of Christmas. Yeah. What is, it, is that? What it Partridge is? Partridge in a pear tree. Party exactly. It feels it feels a little bit like that. Now, to be fair, some of these did not go in order. And there's probably still some numbers that I missed that were spread out in there, but it was a lot of numbers less than ten. It, it's in this kind of thing is sort of I'll say important, but it's whenever you dig into these sorts of little things, it's we've bumped into things that were way more than coincidental. So now it just it feels like we we dig into these little mine shafts where there might be gold hidden, like a nugget of something hidden in there. And it seems promising, but it's almost like you feel like if, if you don't dig a little bit further, then you're giving up on something that might shed another additional nugget of, of interesting info. And uh, this is just one of those chapters. Like when I first saw it, I just thought, okay, first we got Hotcock 007, level seven avatar. He talks about very specifically getting busy at seven o'clock in the evening, seven Oh, seven. Mm-hmm. A lot of repetitions of seven jumped out at me. And I couldn't put that into anything. But this book has made me just so freaking paranoid about missing something that when you start to see these little patterns jump out, you're not sure if it's just 
the author unknowingly kind of using the same numbers over and over again, or if it's intentional, like this idea of the time being exactly 207. Why the fuck is that relevant? Yeah. You know, why would you, why, why would you do that? You know? Because everything when you're writing from everything that I've heard from authors is very intentional. Well, yeah. Like there's, there's a particular philosophy in writing where the idea is that don't, you don't mention something that doesn't mean anything at some point, you know, to someone, to some point in the story. You know, if you mention that the soup was cold, you don't lead a person down the road of giving a fuck about the soup being cold if it doesn't actually lend to the story in some way. Like, you know, a few chapters down the road, they have soup and it turns out to be blistering hot and they wish it was cold or something. <laughs> if you put something in the fucking story and it's that specific, you're hooking the person into thinking it's relevant. And if you don't revisit it, if you don't bring it back up, it's a bit like, you know, the person who has the handcuffs and then they pull out like a, a clothespin or a bobby pin out of their hair and then they use it to pick the lock. That's the reverse of the situation. That's pulling something out that probably should have been noticed. Like there should have been five chapters before she got ready, she put on some makeup and then she put a, a bobby clip neatly tucked within the folds of her hair in order to hold that wisp in just the right way. And you're like, why the fuck are you going on about this? And then three chapters later, pull the bobby pin out, use it together, the handcuffs runs away, and you're like, ah, that's why that was important. It's like the, uh, uh, what do they call it? Is, it? is MacGuffin the right word? No, no, no well, not MacGuffin. No, I'm sorry. In... It was the, um, Oh, oh, it's Chekhov's gun. Uh, you're, okay, you're gonna have to loop me into that. I think I understand, but but the the the, the trope of uh, Chekhov's gun. It's a dramatic principle that states that every element of story must be necessary, and irrelevant elements should be removed. Elements should not appear to make false promises by never coming into play. Oh, then that's exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. It's it's, yeah. it's the whole idea that I knew there was a phrase for it. I just I don't remember it being Chekhov's gun, but that that freaking makes sense. Um, yes. See, uh, on the Wikipedia page for Chekhov's gun, it says, "See also MacGuffin, a plot motivator with little or no narrative explanation." I think a MacGuffin's a little bit different because a MacGuffin in a game might be finding 200 stopwatches, and you know there's 200, and they're strewn about. You get nothing for it. It means nothing. But somehow you are hooked to finding every one of those stupid stopwatches in the game. And that's a MacGuffin. It's, it's not meant to have a point. It's, but it's not, it's not meant in a way where it's overly described either. It's just hidden and it's meant to be collected. I think, I think a MacGuffin is a very different device in this situation. Or it's something that you're after that doesn't lend to the plot in any way. So another example of MacGuffin would be a Pulp Fiction. You've seen Pulp Fiction, right? Please tell me you've, you've seen Pulp Fiction. What will you give me if I say yes? No, I've seen it. Okay. All right. All right. So what was the MacGuffin in Pulp Fiction? I mean, the briefcase. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the golden light coming out of the briefcase. They don't tell you what the golden light is. You know that it's important. There's like a bazillion and one theories for what the golden light is coming out of the briefcase. But we never actually know what's in the briefcase because it, the story somewhat pivots around it as being important, but never 
gives away why it's important. And that that is an example of a, a movie. Yeah, I remember like discussing theories about what that was. There's some really good theories. I don't want to go down that road though, but there are Yeah, no, we we know we do not have time for that on this episode. No, no. Uh so so we have so here we have whenever we run into these little things, these, you know, call time two oh seven, customer satisfaction rating of six. I mean you know, Hotcock 007 is a level seven avid. These things come out like the fact that there's some patterning that goes on here. It's almost as if the pattern takes the form of that thing that's trying to lead you around. I don't know if the pattern is per se a MacGuffin here or if they're pulling a, as you put it, Chekhov's gun where they're giving you detail and then later you're expecting it to kind of wrap up and mean something, but it doesn't. Like call time 207 or that he got busy at night working on the computer systems. I'm pretty sure it was like at 707 or something along those lines. That's when he said lights. So for all we know, that could just be when Ernie Klein was writing this, he looked at the clock and said, okay, that time looks good. It happened to be 207. It happened to be 707. Yeah, but it's a Hotcock 007, level 7, 207, 707. Maybe, maybe, Anyhow, maybe we'll it was July on. 7th when he wrote that. You, you get the gist as to why it feels like that pattern is somehow important and yet not, because he's known for nesting eggs in the story with very specific details, and it just kind of feels like this chapter had that kind of pattern. But again, while it felt like it had the pattern, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't evolve into something. I know, it makes me and, sad. You know, well, you know, that's that's the Chekhov's gun for me. <sighs> so. All right, so we, we beat that All right. to death. Totally beat that to death. Did you find anything? I got a few more. I did. I did. I, I kind of looked into uh, the Orbo Asavox. Oh, do tell. And the best thing I found was this idea that, that Asavox might be sort of a Latin, Latin derivative, that Vox means voice and Asum means bone or death, so that the orb itself translates to death voice. Hmm. Now, that was kind of interesting, especially considering what you have to say to trigger it and or that is voice command in order to, to, to trigger it off. It's an interesting little tidbit that, that somebody online had had come up with that I thought was pretty neat. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Asuvox. Asuvox. How about you? What What's your next biggest best? So my next biggest best whatever. So I've read this book a billion times. And... Mm. It wasn't really until I started to dig deep for this episode where I was like, I wonder what Star Chamber is from. So I look it up, and lo and behold, there's a film starring Michael Douglas called Star Chamber, which came out in 1983. Mm -hmm. So I was like, ah, what do you know? So what's Star Chamber about? Judge Steve Harden, played by Michael Douglas, is discouraged by the failures of the legal system after seeing Hardin's criminals go free on technicalities. Acknowledging Hardin's perspective, his peer, Benjamin Caulfield, played by Hal Holbrook, introduces him to the Star Chamber, a secret organization that condones vigilante action in cases where justice has not been served. However, when the cabal sentences two criminals to death and Hardin finds them falsely accused, he clashes with the powerful group. Where does where where does Star Chamber come up in the uh, in the chapter again? That's where that's where all the folders of all the high five members are found in a, in an area called the Star Chamber. That's the where the mother load is. Ah, uh, I probably 
I should have oh, okay. started with that. Yeah. The, after he dug through the labyrinth, he found the, the folder called the Star Chamber. And the Star Chamber was the folder holding the the folders for the High Five. Okay. So so here's where it comes from. While the data and video on the third gate was copying over to my flash drive, I continued to delve deeper into the Sixer database. Eventually, I uncovered a restricted area called the Star Chamber. It was the only area of the database I couldn't seem to access. So I used my admin ID to create a new test account, then gave that account super user access and full administrator privileges. It worked, and I was granted access. The information inside the restricted area was divided into two folders, mission status and threat assessments. I opened the threat assessments folder first, and when I saw what was inside, I felt the blood drain from my face. There were five folders labeled Parzival, Artemis, H, Shoto, and Daito. Daito's folder had a large red X over it. So we've got a reference to a a group of judges and whatnot that are kind of doing vigilante justice, basically judge, jury, and executioner for individuals. And we have uh, a folder by that name with a list of people whom they are sort of falsely sentencing to death. So an aptly named uh-huh. folder for a hit list. Now, that's kind of cool. I, I, I saw that and I don't know why I skipped over that, but I just I, I was not I, I don't know. I just skipped right over that one. So that was that's a good I catch, skipped man. over that so many times. It's embarrassing. Like I can't I can't go to work tomorrow. I'm so embarrassed. I need to stay home. Okay, knock it off. Jeez. All right. Is there are there any other last tinfoil hat theories or, or references that that uh, may have slipped by us? I was trying to dig into the Artemis folder stuff. He mentions a, an at like a very specific address in Vancouver, British Columbia. Oh, dude, I looked yeah. that up. So, did you find anything? No, no. I mean, like you can find the address. Strangely enough, the address on is on a street where the address doesn't exist. Yeah, and I might have to look into that a little bit deeper because the last time we ran into this, yeah, we found some crazy. We we found Happy Time Pizza and Video Rental, but it didn't exist, and instead there was something else there. So it makes me wonder if that address, because I I looked at the place the address is on that street, don't even come yeah, close. It doesn't. Like the, the, it the doesn't number, go up that high. No. It doesn't, but there are addresses on that street. There is a very specific house that that point is in front of. And I wonder if somebody didn't drop an address reference into Google for where that is and if the house that's across from it is somehow meaningful. What I didn't do is I didn't cross-reference search for the actual address that is there. Oh. Um, Yeah. Like maybe the real address that's there is the hint or connected to something. Maybe. Maybe. So yeah, that I didn't delve into it too much deeper than try to find it on Google Maps. Mm-hmm. As I was digging into the Artemis folder stuff, and I'm like, Samantha Evelyn Cook. Is there anything about that name that could be significant? And I'm like, well, let's look at the initials, SEC. What does that stand for? Could it mean anything? And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure this isn't a plug for the actual SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Highly doubt it. No, you don't no, think so? I really don't. But I thought it was interesting that when you break it down, Samantha Evelyn Cook, SEC, EC, EC being the initials for Ernest Klein, but that could just be a coincidence too. Okay. Okay. But I don't know where the dangling S would go. If that's the direction you're going to head in, you could find the letters E and C all over the damn place. 
just coincidentally. But, but he had to name a character whose initials include EC. Uh, two of the three initials. Yeah. I, I definitely think that there's a much longer string of yarn between Ernest Klein and those initials than some of our other tinfoil hat theories. I, I, I didn't say it was a good theory of any sort. I was just... We could put it up on the board. Okay. We could put the string, string. from one... <laughs> which will string into the center. <sighs> All right. Have we exhausted this chapter? I think we have. I think so. But before we go... Was there anything in particular that you liked about this chapter? Uh, I liked uh, a lot of the chapter because it, it got into the technical stuff and it, I say technical stuff, which is not a really technical way of saying technical things, but it, it got into a lot of the questions about could he do what he was doing? Could a person do today to a big business what he would be doing to IOI? And I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is that there isn't anything that he's doing that is not, that is not plausible. Uh, how far he could get in to any particular business is potentially questionable, but I think it's possible. And and what he's really doing is this sort of elaborate way of social engineering from the inside. This is kind of like the person who wants to infiltrate a business. So he looks for the position within a company that allows him the most amount of access with the least amount of credentials, what would you think that would be? Oh, is that a real question to me? That is a real question. There are a couple of movies that have like leveraged to this, but like a janitor, you're given keys to the building, gives you entrance into a number of places for cleaning purposes, uh, you know, and your credentials don't have to be any higher than a, a master's degree in custodial arts. Except <laughs> nowadays, maybe. <laughs> Uh, in the 80s, it was just a bachelor's degree, maybe an associate's. But, but I mean, you get the gist, though, is that you don't have to have 20 or 30 years of high-ranking whatever or specializations in any particular knowledge. You just have to know how to clean shit and, and have enough clean background to be a janitor or a service worker at a business. It's kind of the perfect cover there. And that's kind of what he's doing. So this is not far from what could be potentially done. Okay. It's one of those things where you kind of sit back and go, could he really do that? Could he really do that? And I think, yes, I think given the situation he's in, he put himself into a position where it wouldn't be questioned because they came and got him. He didn't have to get a job in the company. And that's the that's really like the next best thing. Because, you know, if he if he got a job, they would have had to search his background and they'd really dig deep on him, possibly. But as far as like ripping him out of his haptic suit and and you know, throwing him in, like you don't have to have credentials for shit to do that. So it really so was a, a, a pretty good plan. Yeah. No, that's no, a fantastic plan for getting it. You know, he got them to come get him and bring them in. That's that's freaking brilliant. I, I like this twist to that trope of infiltrating a business. Here, he just had the business come and get him. And I was like, that's a really cool way to do it. And the things that he's doing, while kind of have to stretch the imagination a little bit, the fact that he referenced hack websites and hack auction stuff for, you know, exploits and, and passwords and usernames, that's all shit you can do today. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, I you know, I, I read this chapter and I thought, you know what, this is this is kind of high up there in the... Potential reality, technology-wise. You know, I can see this. It's not so far-fetched. And that's why I like this chapter. Very good. And the use of Hotcock 007. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. I thought it was a good chapter, especially considering that chapters leading up to it were mm -hmm. kind of mealy and not so... To say that there wasn't much to them is a little bit... Sounds very harsh, but they were short and very little actually happens. 
Whereas in this chapter, this was like, this is very nutrient dense. This, there was a lot going on here. Mm. This was like organ meat. There's <laughs> a lot to chew yeah. on. Yeah. Play organ meat. It's like, like, like eating a heart. It's incredibly but tough. But it's got a lot of nutrients. There's a lot in there. And yeah, we got to dig into this one in a way that we haven't been able to do for many chapters because a lot goes on. And it was nice to get to this chapter for that reason, but speaking to it on the sense of just the content, this was just so much of what we really like about the character Parzival, the problem solving, mm-hmm. the hunting, the aspect of his character. And this is him going back to, I guess, his roots, because he's had a little bit of a swing in his character where he's where he's the he starts off as this kind of lowly gunter and then he becomes elite and then he has this problem with the girl and then he goes very depressed and he's not really caring about the contest and then all of a sudden he finds out about Daito and then he's kind of then he wants to win more than ever this is the problem siding side that I yeah. love of the book the the you're in a tough situation and you're asked, you're kind of thinking in the back of your head, how are you going to get out of it? And then he has the solution sort of baked into the story as it unfolds and uncovers more problems, which is great as a lead into the next chapter. This is this is one of the, the better chapters yeah. in the book. And yes, if I mean, we've mentioned this with the last couple of chapters for sure or somewhere along the last few chapters. But if at this point you're not staying up all night to finish the book, I don't know what your problem. Yeah, at this point, you should be pretty well damn hooked. This this chapter does a great job of hooking you into the next one. The pa- past couple chapters were just really setting the tone for this chapter and for where he would end up being. It really is that point where it yeah you, know, you want to talk about thing we were mentioning earlier about what what could you do to kick sleep sleepiness to the curb and plow on through something. Get to this chapter the first time you've read the book, and you'll be up until you finish the book. Yeah, this is your second win chapter. All right, speaking of which, are we are we good to close the book? As much fun as this is, it is not going to keep me up all night. All right, then I will close it up. Thank you for listening to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we will catch you in Chapter 31. We'll see you then. It just, it seemed very, 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 it just, it justified the shallowness. Like, you know, woo, you know, I, I didn't have to, to uh, call that bluff. Yeah. I guess is the best way to put well, it. He could have always said, well, it's only that one birthmark. That's not a big deal. So what? Oh, she's Canadian. <laughs> oh, that blows it right out of the water. There you ah, go. Ah, fuck that shit. <laughs> Dodged a bullet on that one.